Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. This episode of The Filter is a follow-up to my interview with Kurt Anderson, author of a number of books, including Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, which our discussion focused on. I'll quickly summarize that episode before we begin, so you don't need to listen to that interview first, but I recommend you do. It's a really good episode. It's a good episode despite the fact that, listening back, I could have been more clear about the points I was making. This is true to some extent about every filter interview I've done so far. It comes with the territory of doing long-form unscripted conversations about ideas. It also comes from being still relatively new to this particular genre. I accept that I'll always find some faults with my performance, but the episodes go out anyway, and I'll have some other opportunity to make a point better or expand on it in a future episode. My conversation with Kurt had an additional constraint in that it was shorter than I would have liked, especially given how interesting his book is and how many detailed notes I had for our conversation. I certainly don't blame Mr. Anderson for this. Like most of the people I talk with for The Filter, he's in high demand and I fully appreciate the time he set aside to talk with me. All that throat clearing aside, what follows is a solo show that builds on my interview with Kurt, clarifies some of my thoughts, and goes much deeper down the rabbit holes his book opened for me. To mitigate the one-sidedness of this episode, I'll do my very best to present counter-arguments to the points and to present these as fairly and strongly as possible, and will extend the invitation to Kurt to come back on any time to continue the discussion. The book Fantasyland is a tour of the many ways in which Americans over the years have chosen to believe fantastical things and live in fantasy worlds. To say these ways are many is to put it mildly. We have religion, renaissance fairs, endless superhero movies, comic-cons, fantasy football leagues, rock star camps, VR porn, lotteries, The Sims, Disneyland, immersive video games, and on and on and on and on. Sometimes we like these fantasy lands sterilized, literally disnified. Other times we prefer them ultra gritty, as in video games like Grand Theft Auto or the endless crime dramas on TV where a cop might draw his weapon more in a single episode than most cops draw theirs in their entire career. Every fantasy is, in some sense, a simulation, and these simulations are often based on a past or a place as we imagine it must have been. You can visit the ultra-violent Old West, complete with rivers of blood that Hollywood desk jockeys imagine must have flowed down Main Street back when everyone was armed. Other simulations break with even the patina of retro-realism. Steampunk blends the imaginary past with the imaginary future, in much the same way Star Wars, officially set a long time ago, made high-tech glowy swords the key weapon of civilizations capable of intergalactic travel. 
At some point, these simulations, either presented as authentic throwbacks or as explicitly imaginary, become their own thing, worlds onto themselves. They are experienced and critiqued not in reference to the places they simulate, but in reference to a class of simulations itself. The latest Disneyland's Main Street is no longer compared to its mid-20th century referent. It's evaluated in the context of other Disneyland Main Streets. Someone buying a Dreamcatcher at a reservation gift shop isn't concerned with how well it authentically replicates a spiritual totem they might know never existed in the first place. The buyer is comparing it to all the other Dreamcatchers they've seen for sale. You might think, in light of our collective embrace of fantasy, as such a dominant presence in our lives that our normal lives would be mired in abject misery with escapism, our only escape. But, at least materially, regular Americans have enjoyed a standard of living that would have been the envy of most monarchs throughout history, or at least until recently when local governments destroyed millions of their jobs and slashed their freedoms in the name of combating a pandemic, an act of fantastical thinking that diverged from reality as soon as the data and consequences of lockdown began revealing themselves. I'll go more into that later. The point for now is that while living in fantasy land is certainly not unique to Americans, the following two things both seem clearly in evidence. Americans are on the highest end of the spectrum in terms of their embrace of the unreal as part of their everyday lives, and that this embrace has coexisted historically with amazing progress towards a society that is prosperous and flourishing. Why would living in fantasy land be compatible with such effectiveness in shaping the real world. For one, and Kurt mentioned this in our interview, we've always had political and economic leaders with a strong rationalist bent. The giants who built the railroads got us to the moon and figured out how to build the atomic bomb were hyper-rationalists, perhaps even to a fault something Kurt discusses in his book. For another, some of the particular fantasies Americans have held and continue to hold are highly compatible with material success. Put yourself for a moment into the 18th century Calvinist mindset. You believe that on the day you were born, your spiritual fate was sealed. You are headed to heaven or to hell, and no choice you make on earth can change that. At the same time, though, everything you do while alive is evidence of which way you are headed in the afterlife. There are lots of signs pointing one way or another. Have you succeeded materially, or has God made you a penniless bum? Do others consider you to be moral? Do they see you as lazy, wicked, unindustrious, or as hardworking, upstanding, righteous, just the kind of person God would have picked for his kingdom in the sky? Imagine the mindfuck and stressfulness of constantly looking for signs that you are favored and continually striving to bring about those signs, but never having certainty about an eternal destination you have no control over. Your entire life is spent reading the tea leaves of your future, and those tea leaves are impacted by your actions. Considering sleeping in this morning, ignoring your chores, would the kind of person who even fantasizes or entertains the thought of being lazy also be a chosen one? Beyond Calvinist theology driving a Protestant work ethic, we have an assortment of positive thinking myths. To call these fantasies isn't entirely correct. They are more like 
over optimism and they tend to be much more socially useful than their foil in overly pessimistic outlook. The classic Han Solo quote Never tell me the odds. may be idiotic to its core and maladaptive at the individual level since most of those who embrace it crash into asteroids, but at the societal level, the willingness to explore high-risk, high-reward strategies is highly compatible with material progress. It's also a generally good idea at the individual level to keep a positive outlook, even when you recognize that the odds may not favor you. Defeatism breeds defeat. Optimism can bend those odds in the right direction. One more source of compatibility between fantasy land and American exceptionalism is that we've become such experts at fantasy that it's one of our major exports. Hollywood brings in billions of dollars worldwide each year. The sun never sets on Disneyland. Only one country even comes close to America in terms of how successfully they export their culture. I discussed that country briefly in my interview with Kurt. For America, fantasy is big business, and historically that business has done exceptionally well for us, both domestically and abroad. On the other hand, one dark side of our tendency towards fantastical thinking involves overactive imaginations about the threat posed by the others around us. We overreact to perceived threats, often to an extreme degree. Our fantastical thinking expresses itself in paranoid fantasies about forces of evil. We burn witches, imagine widespread satanic abuse at daycares, lock up anyone with Japanese heritage during a war, and think curfews will cure a pandemic. Past Filter guest Jesse Walker does a great job outlining many of these historical panics and hysterias in his book, The United States of Paranoia. To give the devil his due here, I should note that even this dark side of fantastical thinking can be adaptive at times. As the saying goes, Sometimes a panic is well-founded and hysteria about our panic becomes the problem. This is perhaps the case in the so-called Red Scare era, which is now remembered thanks to the ideological bent of our establishment media and educational systems as just as crazy as the Salem Witch Trials, an analogy made explicit by one of the few famous plays written in the last 50 years. There were no real witches casting real black magic spells, but there were indeed real communists who infiltrated many of our cultural and political institutions. The threat they actually represented is certainly debatable, and the paranoia of rent hunters like Joseph McCarthy is unmistakable. But treating his paranoia as a baseless hysteria blinded Americans to the real downside of ceding its cultural and academic institutions to the actual communist sympathizers among us. On a personal note, my own grandmother got caught up in this anti-communist fervor. She even spent a couple days in jail after getting arrested under the Smith Act. As a free speech absolutist, the idea that anyone would be caged for their ideological views strikes me as insane and clearly doing so can be counterproductive as well. In the long run, turning commies into martyrs certainly didn't help the U.S. expunge what is, by body count, the worst ideology of the 20th century, far outpacing the obvious number two evil I'm sure you're already thinking of. 
Communism itself is a poster child for the dark side of magical thinking. Instead of aligning economic incentives to human nature, it imagines our natures, evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, can be rewritten by dictates and re-education camps. It's an ideology spread entirely by nice-sounding but intentionally undefined or dishonest platitudes like living wages, or else driven by sob stories about individuals who've had bad lives in non-communist societies, as if the existence of suffering outside of communism is proof that communism works. I'm not strawmanning here. In the hundreds or perhaps thousands of hours of exposure I've had to arguments in favor of this ideology, I've never seen a proponent recognize the ironclad correlation between communism and starvation, or give a coherent explanation for why a wage that people who are actually living on isn't actually a living wage. These dual fantasies that we can use words in an extremely propagandistic way and yet still have them reflect reality, and that an apparent failure of X is justification for Y, are at the heart of what is, in my view, destroying the world right now. In my discussion with Kurt, I brought up the fantasy expressed by many Democrat partisans that America is overrun with Nazis. I used a tweet by actor John Cusack claiming that 30% of Americans are Nazis. My point wasn't to pick on the justifiably revered star who uttered the classic lines, How would you like to have a sexual encounter so intense it could conceivably change your political views? His is a view I've seen expressed by thousands of prominent or influential Americans, at least as judged by follower counts or blue check marks on Twitter. Here, clearly, two interpretations are possible. One is that the Cusacks literally believe that America literally has 100 million literal Nazis. If this is the belief, then the Cusacks are completely removed from the reality of our country and have no idea what a country with 100 million literal Nazis would look like. Even World War II-era Germany never reached that level of literal Nazis. The other interpretation is that in this context, Nazi simply means an awful person who I hate. Its use is strictly propagandistic, expressing Cusack's internal level of hatred towards a large group of others he wishes to demonize and dehumanize. As is a central theme of this podcast, our abstractions are filters we overlay on the world. All filters distort that's both inevitable and often adaptive. If you spot something that looks like a snake, it might make sense to treat it like a snake, especially if you live in a place where vipers abound. But good filters allow for real-world feedback. Once you realize the snake is just a stick, you should stop seeing it as a snake. And if you keep mistaking sticks for deadly threats, you should probably lower your threat level threshold to preserve your endocrine system. The literal belief in 100 million literal Nazis is a profoundly distorted filter, one with extreme consequences for the fabric of society if it's believed by more than the tiniest fraction of the population. But it's hard to see the use of the term Nazi in the figurative sense as much better. Either way, Cusack is saying, these people are so awful they should be wiped off the face of the earth. He's claiming the right to apply a label that is universally understood to mean the worst human being possible to the majority of those belonging to another tribe. 
Years ago, when people on the right claimed that people on the left wanted them dead, that itself seemed to me like delusional hyperbole, a fantasy land filter on the opposition. Having now watched as Team Blue partisans have shot up a baseball field of Republican senators, sent death threats to those who defend themselves against violent mobs, and straight up executed Trump supporters to radio silence from Team Blue media, this claim no longer seems so fantastical. Do the Cusacks out there literally want those 100 million literal Nazis killed? That seems highly unlikely, and I wouldn't project that on them. But clearly, there are lots and lots of Cusacks who are comfortable with bad things happening to bad people and express no public empathy for their opposition. To be fair to those who take a less extreme view of the opposition, I understand there have been incidents where people on Team Red have acted in extraordinarily poor and sometimes violent ways. But for every incident of Proud Boys shooting paintballs at Antifa, there have been dozens of underreported acts of violence to MAGA hat wearers and a long string of high-profile hate crimes supposedly committed by Team Red that turned out to be hoaxes, including a massive national story about a MAGA-hatted teen who was publicly lynched for the high crime of apparently smirking at a Native American. There is no equivalent on the other side, not even close. Part of deciding not to live in fantasy land involves exposing yourself to the arguments and incidents that the other side or sides present. This happens automatically to anyone on Team Red in America, as almost every single mainstream newspaper and comedy show and talking head have been blasting out anti-Team Red accounts and opinions for years now, which explains why, as demonstrated by studies, Team Red can do a much more accurate job of summarizing the Team Blue viewpoint than vice versa. Also, if you believed your opponents were literal Nazis, would you even try and get inside their heads to understand them? Why even bother? The most disturbing fantasy land beliefs are, without doubt, the ones that serve as invitations to mass violence or the implementation of totalitarian controls. In this sense, the worst fantasy land belief of recent history is even worse than the 100 million Nazis idea. It was the widely believed fiction that lockdown measures were going to be two weeks to bend the curve, or some such similar phrase. Those of us with even the most basic understanding of how government works and a desire to avoid totalitarianism sounded the alarm as loudly as we could about the dangers of such temporary measures, but our alarms fell almost entirely on deaf ears. The media, aided by politicians and alarmist MDs, successfully created a fantasy world in which unless we shut down everything, everyone would die. Or, as America's most famous governor put it, repeatedly, The illness is death. The fear was sold masterfully, and the public was conditioned so well that the actual source of the fear could be replaced by proxies that bore only a loose relationship to the actual danger. Deaths from COVID became deaths with COVID, became daily tallies of positive PCR tests, all the while generating the same level of fear and panic. Pavlov himself couldn't have done a better job of conditioning the public. There's much to be said about the particular shape this fear takes, 
and about the civilization-ending nature of social distancing mass and the elimination of every important bonding ritual from weddings to funerals to Thanksgiving dinner. There's much more to be said about this, but at the same time, the effects of these changes should go without saying to anyone willing to consider the downside risks for even a few minutes. But thinking calmly and clearly is hard to do when you're still seeing vipers everywhere or listening to politicians who say that anyone going outside without a mask is a homicidal maniac. At this point, I want to take a step back to examine the unreasonable effectiveness of substitution simulacra as a form of manipulation. We know this effectiveness has been known for about as long as we have recorded history. In the ancient world, professional mourners were hired to act out overt displays of grief, reinforcing the idea that the person who died deserved mourning and providing comfort in the form of social validation to genuinely crying relatives. On the flip side, any professional comedian can tell you the value of a few people in the crowd who are strongly predisposed to laugh at your jokes. I've written that true power is the ability to decide what is information or which arguments are allowed in to the conversation. This is the power to directly alter people's filters, rendering some parts of the world invisible to them and making others inescapable, even to me, even on this podcast. There's a topic I've preferred to avoid on the filter because I don't have anything of value to add and because, in my opinion, it's pathologically over-discussed in general. And yet, it still comes up despite my best efforts because in the simulacra that's been crafted for us, this topic has the gravitational force of a hypernova. Perhaps you can guess what it is. In my lifetime, I've never seen such intense control exerted over our individual filters. It seems like some perfect storm of ideological hegemony among the drivers of culture, media, education, and permanent state power, combined with big tech's strong gatekeeping role on information and the fog of war around the pandemic, have created a moment where anyone who offers dissenting views, no matter how grounded in reality, can be effortlessly muted did you hear about the thousands of doctors or other medical professionals who came out strongly against the lockdown? If you did, you are in a very small minority. And if you tried to share this information on Facebook or Twitter, it's highly likely your posts were censored or algorithmically suppressed. In Kurt's telling, Americans' strong sense of individualism is also a cause of its embrace, or at least tolerance, for fantastical beliefs. The argument here is that in a you-do-you-anything-goes culture, idiosyncratic beliefs that diverge from reality are socially permissible in a way that isn't the case in less individualistic places. If you, as an American, want to believe that crystals can heal you or that fairies exist or that you can change your gender by changing your pronouns, then go for it. It's your individual right to believe these things. I don't think Kurt's argument here is wrong, but it's complicated by two countervailing factors, one obvious, one more subtle. The obvious point is that while a sense of individualism allows individuals to hold fantastical views without rebuke, societies that subvert the individual usually do so in the name of some fantastical belief, often religious. So historically, we see a strong binary of societies that let people believe in bespoke nonsense and those that enforce mandatory belief in officially sanctioned nonsense. 
The more subtle point, very much related to this one, is that in a semi-secular, semi-rationalist society, iconoclastic thinking will be higher variance with respect to the truth. To elaborate, imagine that an idea which perfectly reflects reality is like an arrow sunk into the bullseye of a target. Ideally, a society which upholds rationality would enforce collective beliefs that conform as closely as possible to that bullseye. In reality, because our knowledge of the universe is always imperfect and provisional, and because all beliefs exist in a political context, collectively enforced beliefs, even in a society which highly values rationality, will tend to be off the mark in a systemic way that benefits the intelligentsia. Imagine a thousand arrows, one for each person's belief, all tightly clustered together two inches to the left of the bullseye. In an open, individualistic society, those beliefs will be much less tightly clustered. Many of them will be much farther from the bullseye, beliefs that are like, Fire out, man! But some of those beliefs that seem way out there, at least from the perspective of those in the dense cluster of arrows, will actually be much more accurate than the prevailing wisdom. In a semi-rational society, individualism and a culture of free expression allows people to be both more wrong and more right. Human progress at large depends on our tolerance for speech that points us closer to the bullseye, and there's no a priori way to censor only the dumb ideas. The history of science is a history of iconoclastic beliefs that begin as patently absurd, but are now widely viewed as getting us much closer to the truth, from heliocentrism to Einstein's general relativity. We now seem to be moving into the worst of both worlds. The highly clustered beliefs of our intelligentsia are moving ever farther away from the bullseye in the direction that empowers the already powerful, while at the same time, not coincidentally, our collective tolerance for the divergent thoughts of others is growing ever smaller. Imagine any arrow that's placed more than an inch from the center of the cluster is instantly removed from the board or lit on fire as a warning to others. That, in essence, is what cancel culture looks like. This is where we seem to be right now. Appetite for free speech in general is as low as it's been in my lifetime. People have been successfully sold on the idea that all non-official speech is dangerous. Bad medical information costs lives, hate speech is violence, you have to follow the science, and those in power tell you exactly what the science says, and anyone who objects will be disgraced, deplatformed, fired, or, as can now happen in several Commonwealth nations, arrested for posting unacceptable views to social media feeds. In this sense, we have been collectively driven back in time to the era of complete church control over society. Except, instead of illiterate peasants prevented from understanding the Bible except through the clerisy, we now have masses of highly literate peasants only allowed to view information that Facebook, CNN, or the CIA, with its embeds at the Washington Post and elsewhere, deem relevant and proper. Everything else is a conspiracy theory, or dangerous, or worthy of less attention than the tiled floor in a public bathroom. We've all been relegated to Plato's cave, and only some interpretations of the shadows are permitted, while other shadows can't even be remarked on at all. 
In the simulacra being constructed for us, they simply don't exist. There's one more piece of this perfect storm of censoriousness, one I've already alluded to. It's the so-called unique threat posed by the Trump presidency, which, as I am recording this, may be coming to an end. As journalist Glenn Greenwald put it, if you are really facing Hitler, then all of the rules of the game change. In particular, in such a world, it makes sense to decide that the president himself shouldn't get a platform. He should be kicked off Twitter, a belief expressed not just by low-level trolls, but by politicians at the highest levels of political power. Likewise, Trump's supporters should not only be censored, they should be added to blacklists, rendered unhirable, perhaps even prosecuted for their support of this terrible threat. All of their arrows should be burned, lest others decide it's okay to share those same beliefs. I think it's worth noting that hyperbolic thinking about the others can bootstrap its own reality. Sometimes this happens accidentally, sometimes it's deliberately engineered. Jesse Walker, in his aforementioned book on U.S. history, does a great job showing how irrational fears about a group can lead to attacks on that group, which can lead that group to defend itself in ways which reinforce the view of them as dangerous. This is, in large measure, the self-perpetuating cycle used to justify innumerable massacres of indigenous tribes in 19th century America. In this pattern, an angry mob with pitchforks and bullhorns is convinced they should surround a house. Then, when the homeowner brandishes a weapon, this is pointed to as an act of aggression, which justifies taking them out. This is a very old tactic to turn a group's paranoid fantasy into actionable reality, but Americans seem to have become particularly adept at using it to provide moralistic cover for wars of aggression against enemies both foreign and domestic. Political power in the information age is the power to control the narrative, and the narrative, no matter how loosely coupled to reality, has the ability to shape perception so strongly that reality itself is bent in the direction of the perceptions. When journalists tell viewers that COVID is destroying the economy, it's not that they are wrong as such, it's that we've transubstantiated a disease that's deadly to the very old and very sick into enough fear and hysteria to sell the idea that shutting down the economy was synonymous with fighting the pandemic, and anyone who opposed lockdown measures was a grandma killer. The intermediate step is simply elided as irrelevant, and the logic that upheld it looks just as unquestionable as the tides. Of course COVID destroyed the economy. How could it not? Once you understand the game being played here, it's immediately obvious why there can't be dissenting institutions or even dissenting governments. These show up like cracks in the shell of a movie set we've been placed on unwittingly. They are potential evidence that alternative responses exist and, even more damningly, that they could be better. We saw this in 08 with the bailouts, when every country was pressured into stimulus spending, on the threat that if they didn't, all the banks would fail and the economy would be destroyed. We see it now, where the crack that is Sweden has been covered over by a veil of moral indignation and hyperventilating over every death, obscuring our view of life on the other side of the crack. 
I traveled there last month just to escape the set of our dystopian movie and found that, strangely enough, life went on just fine without masks or lockdowns. Though as I record this, they may be finally caving to pressures and be plastering over the crack that allowed us to see outside of our own walls. Now that the established powers have gained nearly unlimited control over our filters, what comes next? My guess, and I understand this will be a triggering term for almost everybody for one reason or another, is that we will be treated to the much-discussed opportunity for a reset. And the vast majority of humans on this planet will find themselves emerging poorer and with much less freedom and autonomy than they had before. The 20th century may have been just a small preview of the horrors of collectivism that await us in the 21st. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.